in Revelation chapter number 5, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The vision was received and written down about 2,000 years ago. But the events that we just read that comprise the vision haven't happened yet. This is future. Now, don't get boggled in the past, present, future paradigm that does not exist in heaven. But as we are reading this, I want you to know that this is yet to take place in what we would call our time space continuum. The one thing that I can say is happening now is this passionate expression of worship. What John saw in a vision, what we look, for, look forward to by faith, we are able to import some of these realities right now in the middle of life as you know it, 24-7. The mundane, the highlights, the supernatural, the natural, the ecstatic, the boring, the ins and outs, ups and downs, all of that is life under the sun. But friends, that's not all there is to life under the sun. We are able to connect with this glorious king via faith, and we can worship as they did.
So let's talk about this passionate worship. And it centers around this one who is the Lamb, the Lamb of God. I want to look back in verses 1 through 4. And before we get into the worship aspect of it, there's a problem that preceded the worship. A problem preceding worship. Here it's expressed, first of all, as an awesome opportunity. Look in verses 1 and 2. John says, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That's God the Father. God the Father on the throne. He saw in his hand a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. So here is this glorious scene in heaven. It is coming near the climax of the age And there is John caught up to the third heaven by way of vision. He has already seen the throne, the one sitting on the throne, the 24 elders, the four heavenly creatures. He has seen the stunning, amazing, supernatural vision. But now there he is, and a strong angel, an unnamed angel, but a strong angel out of the myriads, the countless thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands, an angel comes forward and declares across the expanse of heaven and earth who is worthy to take the scroll from the father's hand and open the seals thereof now that scroll is important friends and i don't have the the time tonight to unpack all that it means but i want you to know that within that scroll there are many things contained within that scroll there is the title deed to planet earth which was forfeited by adam which is currently not in supreme control, but the enemy has, has taken the kingdoms of this world and he rules as the prince of the power of the air. You say, Jeff, I don't agree with that. God is in control. Well, God is in control of Satan, but in this expanse, Satan is in control of the world's systems. That is why he said to Jesus in the temptation, if you will bow down before me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus would not shortcut the price that would be paid. Those kingdoms would belong to Jesus one day, but that is what we're working towards. So that title scroll also includes the back end of the consummation of the ages. When that scroll is unleashed, you'll see beginning in chapter 6 through chapter number 18, 19, you will see literally the the fury of God poured out on on a people that have unilaterally rejected him. And in that fury coming and purging the enemies of God from planet earth, you will see also at the back end of that the establishment of the eternal kingdom. You will see the kingdom of God come to planet earth. And all of that is contained in the scroll, but we have a problem here there's an opportunity but look in the next verse in verse number three there's a staggering inability no one in heaven no one on earth no one under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it this opportunity for the kingdom of God to be established across the cosmos requires that someone come and unleash that scroll. And so through all of human history, both in the human history and angelic history, there was not a single human being, nor angel, nor creature that was worthy to approach the Father and take the scroll, one who had the virtue and the power to open it and establish the, the kingdom of God throughout the cosmos. Nobody moved, not Paul. 
Not Moses, not Abraham, not Peter, not Jeremiah, not Elijah, not Elisha, not Ruth, not Naomi, not Esther, not Mary Magdalene. Nobody, John the Baptist, was silent when the angel said, who is worthy? Who is worthy? And there was silence all across the universe. And that silence shows us that there was a staggering inability throughout the cosmos that nobody that had ever walked under the sun or was walking under the sun at that point had the right, the virtue, and power to open the scroll. And therefore, look in verse number four. This became a shattering reality. Look at John's response. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why would John weep, friends? Not only weep, not a tear trickling down his face as he stood stoically, but a gushing weeping, a heart-wrenching weeping, a brokenheartedness as he realized, as the angel gave the challenge to all of the ages, to every inhabitant, to every angel, who is worthy, who is worthy, who is worthy? And there was the most awkward silence that has ever taken place. And John found himself sobbing. The question is this, why would John cry so much? My friends, if you think about this, if the scroll were not opened, Jesus would not be worshipped as the one who opened the scroll. He would not be worshipped as the Redeemer. That's all there in chapter number 5. We're going to find out in a moment. He does open it. But at this moment, John doesn't see anybody moving towards the Father's throne to take the scroll. In chapter number 6, you would find that if the scroll weren't open, the martyrs of the faith would never be avenged. In chapter number 8, the prayers of the saints, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, it would never be answered if the scroll wasn't opened. In chapter number 9, God's appointed plan, eternal plan, could not come to pass if nobody can open the scroll. In chapter number 11, the kingdoms of this world could not become the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ if the scroll is not opened. In chapters 16, 17, and 18, the evil humanity could not be judged as they justly deserve. At the end of the age, they could not be judged unless somebody opens up the scroll. There would be no justice if nobody can open the scroll. 19 verses, or chapter 19 and 20, Jesus can't come back to earth if the scrolls aren't opened. In chapter 21 and 22, God could not reign in glory in the new heavens and the new earth unless someone is found worthy to open the scroll. The bottom line is this, that unfurling of the scroll and the unleashing of the events that it contains that is the last chapter of God's plan for human history as we know it. It would be the greatest story ever written and not being able to read the final chapter. It would be like seeing all of the toil, all of the sweat, all of the sacrifice, all of the pain, all of the waiting, all of the, all of the dependence and faith, and yet being cut off from the end of the story. And so when John recognizes that, he begins to weep at this problem that was preceding the worship. But the weeping's about to stop, and the celebration is about to begin. 
So look down at verses 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to see what is this presence that is animating the worship. Animation just simply means to bring something to life. Something that is still and silent, dormant, or even dead. To animate it means that you bring life, you bring breath into it. And we look in verses 5, 6, and 7, and here's the answer. So John is weeping, but he's about to get the very good news in verse number 5. One of the elders said to me, John testifies, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Let that sink in. John, says one of the elders, stop crying. John, those tears are not needed. John, I want you to look, and there I want you to know that the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's a prophetic title coming from Genesis 49. As Jacob was blessing his his sons, Judah was one of his sons. That's the tribe that Jesus came from. And Judah's blessing indicated that the scepter would remain with him, the power would remain with him, and that he would be like a, a lion's whelp. And that there would be a victory and it is a a majestic prophecy over the tribe of Judah. And Jesus Christ is the lion. He is the pinnacle of the fulfillment of that prophetic word from, from Genesis 49. And so John is told, and then by the way it mentions the root of of David, and that's from Isaiah chapter number 11, another messianic title about uh, about Jesus, that he would be from the lineage of David as Jesus Christ was in the human uh, tree of his uh, ancestry. And so when this is told to John, he's saying, this is the one who is conquered. This is the one who is conquered. What did he conquer? What did Jesus conquer? Jesus conquered death. He conquered hell. He conquered Satan. He conquered sin. He conquered every single demon, everything that has come against you. By the way, he conquered sickness. He conquered disease. He has conquered it. All of it is under his authority. And so when Jesus is being focused upon here as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, the expression is the reason why he can take the scroll is because he has conquered everything that has resisted that authority contained in that scroll. And so he's allowed to open it and to break the seven seals. Now, John's been told, Look to the lion. So look at verse number six. Here's the stunning, this is a stunning center of attention. So John begins to look for the lion. And look at this. And between the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders, I saw a lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is glorious that John was told. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he looked for the lion, he found the lamb. And they're one and the same. And that lamb was standing, though bearing in its body the marks of sacrifice. If you're not familiar with Old Testament Hebrew history, many of their sacrifices, and especially we're thinking of the Passover, involved the slaughter of a sacrificial lamb, where the, the, the sins of the one bringing the lamb 
where they were imparted unto the lamb. And by faith, when that lamb was slaughtered and the, slaughtered and the blood of that lamb spilt, it would appease the wrath of God. It would satisfy God for that individual offering the lamb and all of their sin. And so lambs in Hebrew culture and history, we all know the phrase sacrificial lamb, but it is rooted in Hebrew scripture. It is rooted in the people of the Jews. And so when John looked and he saw the sacrificial lamb, he saw the marks of sacrifice. Could have been very, very um, simply, it could have been placed in a way that would have been reminiscent in John's mind of the same wounds he saw in the Son of God after the resurrection. Remember, Jesus presented himself alive after the resurrection, and people saw his hands. They saw his wounds. Remember when he said to Doubting Thomas, look at my wounds, put your finger in, thrust your hand into my side. His wounds were visible. And when John looked at the lamb, he knew automatically that this was the lamb of God. And so he's stunned as it is described here for us not only standing there because the slaying of that lamb was not the end of the story, it is the standing lamb that we worship. We don't worship a savior who's still nailed to the cross. We, we, we don't worship a savior who's trapped in a tomb. We worship the lamb of God who truly died the death, but truly rose from the grave. And he stands to this day victorious over death. I want you to think about that for a minute because so many people even Christians live their lives in fear of death. Now, I'm not looking forward to the process of dying, but I'm going to tell you something. Death is a doorway to all that God has prepared and promised for you and I. And those of us that are in Christ, we will laugh at death because death cannot own us. We will laugh at death because Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, we, Jesus said it this way, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in me will never die. And so, brothers and sisters, I want you to know, our bodies are going to drop someday if Jesus doesn't come back in the next hundred years. Our bodies are going to drop someday. But we will not, the we of we, the true person that you are, the spirit that God wrapped an earth suit around, I want you to know something. That person is going to live forever in a glorified body. Don't live your life afraid of death, my friends. Jesus has conquered so the Bible goes on to describe this lamb as having seven horns and seven eyes, and, and, and then there, those eyes are, are unpacked to be described as the seven spirits of God. That, that imagery is important. The seven horns, horns in Scripture, especially an ox horn, is, is in, indicative of power. It is, it is an Old Testament symbol primarily of power. And so the number seven indicates in, in prophetic uh, interpretation and indicates completion and perfection. And so when we see the lamb having seven horns on his head, we see the lamb operating in omnipotence, perfect power. This lamb of all things. I mean, in the natural, nobody's afraid of a lamb. No, nobody's intimidated by a lamb. Nobody's impressed by a lamb in the natural. But this is a lamb like no other lamb. And he's described as, as being full of power. Then it also describes him as having seven eyes where the horns speak of his omnipotence. These seven eyes speak of his omniscience. That means this, he knows exactly what he's doing. John is caught up to the third heaven in the midst of an earth life. He's having an earth life where he's, he's uh, exiled on the island of Patmos. He's near the end of his life. 
And I know that when our freedoms are taken away and our power is taken away and all of our our youthful vigor and all of our possibilities and as you come to the end of life, sometimes those possibilities and that power shrinks and you become painfully aware that you are not as vibrant as you used to be and we can fear. And yet John is a very old man, probably upwards close to 100 years old at this time. He sees that the lamb has omniscience and that just simply says to John and to us, he knows what he's doing with us. He knows what he's doing with you tonight. Now, you can raise your hand and say, I'm glad he knows what he's doing because I don't. And that's why he calls you and I to live by what? Faith. He does not say live by every single step of the day, me reassuring you. As you grow with Jesus, I'm going to tell you, he will never stop speaking. But he's not going to speak to you in baby steps anymore. There are times where he's going to go silent on you for a season. And the reason for that is he wants you to find out, can you trust what he's already said to you? So John sees those eyes and speaks of his omniscience. Then the seven spirits, I don't want you to get too caught up in, wow, that doesn't make sense. Again, seven, the number of perfection. And this is a, a prophetic symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit in full power and fullness of spirit coming in union with God the Father on the throne and Jesus the Lamb there. Here we have a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's the stunning center of attention in all of heaven and all the amazing sight. All of the focus is on that Lamb, that Lamb standing in the center. Verse number seven, what does the Lamb do? He displays the authorized right to exercise authority on earth. Remember, the question is, who's worthy? Who is worthy to take the scroll and loose its seals? And nobody was worthy. And yet there is the lamb. And so it says, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. (laughs) That means in all of the searching through heaven and earth where nobody in earth or on earth or under the earth, nobody could be found that was worthy. No single angel, no wonderful Christian, no Old Testament saint. Nobody could do it. But the lamb approaches the father's throne and with seamless authority, with no quaking, with not even asking because they are one the lamb takes the scroll the title deed to the earth that last chapter in god's redemptive history and the lamb says i can open it i can take it i have the virtue i have the authority i have the omniscience i have the omnipotence i have the power i have the right Go down into verse number eight. So Jeff, I thought this was a message on worship. All we're doing is trying to soak a little bit in why they worshiped. Because here's the worship. It all starts breaking forth in verse number eight. Watch this. Remember, all that's been done is this problem has been presented. The lamb has been centralized in everybody's attention. And as he is being the center of attention, he goes and takes the title deed to earth and all of the redemptive history that is yet to be unfolded. He goes and with that taking it from the father's hand, it is obvious to everybody that there is a rescue. 
that the plan will be fulfilled, that there is no reason to panic, no reason to worry, no need to be anxious about whether or not God will complete what he begun. And so in that moment, it comes to this offering of worship. So look in verse 8 and notice the posture. This is where we can learn about worship here. First, the outward posture of worship is described at the beginning of verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. My friends, I want you to know that so impacting was the moment where the Lamb took the scroll. So overwhelming was the relief in the hearts of the elders and the angels and John who has been, giving, uh, been given this vision that their bodies They wanted to bow before this lamb. They wanted to bow before the throne of the father. They wanted to make themselves small because his immensity was overwhelming. What can we learn from that? Because I'm going to tell you something. You can get on your face and still not be worshiping. So it's not primarily about our bodily posture, but I do want to say this. I believe that the attitude of the heart will be in some way expressed at times through the body. Some people say, well, it doesn't matter what's going on on the outside. Well, I would challenge that by saying, then why is it recorded so often in Scripture how people worshipped, how they danced, how they laid before the Lord, how sometimes they were knocked out by the power of God filling a certain area at a certain time. That speaks so often, Old Testament new, it's even commanded to lift up your hands in the sanctuary, to lift up your hands. There is loud vocalization. There is weeping. There is at times being laid out completely on your stomach, at other times completely on your back. And so when we think about the posture of worship, I do want you to know that it is a fallacy to say that the highest form of worship is to be staid and quiet and immovable. I'm not saying that it is not legitimate at times to do that. But I want you to know something. The Holy Spirit wants to make Christ so real to you, so immense to you, that it is not enough for you to worship him with the mind or even with the mind and the mouth. There are times where he will move so strongly inside of you that the only way that you can not worship with your body is that you will suppress that instinct and you will say no to that urge. These elders, these heavenly creatures fell down when He had taken the scroll from the Father. They fell down before the Lamb of God. That outward posture was only significant because it was the result of the inward posture. I will say this. The inward posture of the heart is superior to the outward posture of the body because anybody can fall down. Anybody, well, if anybody who is physically able can physically bow down. But that doesn't mean your heart's bowing. And so what we need to do is we need to focus first on the heart, not first on the body. And when we're talking about worship, and especially when we gather together, let me take a moment just to pastor us in a, in a moment of teaching about worship. Because it is biblical for worship to be animated, but it is not always culturally acceptable, depending on where we are, for worship to be animated. 
I remember the first time I went to Africa as a Baptist. Well, when I went to Africa as a Baptist. And I remember on the first beat of the first drum and the first service we were in, my African brothers and sisters went after it. And I remember just being kind of this awkward white guy who doesn't have a whole lot of rhythm. I'm working on it. Pray for me. Amen. I, I just don't have a whole lot of it. But sooner or later, I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Mazungu, that's what they call me, the white boy. The Mazungu was dancing. And all of a sudden, I was like, hey, all right. And I was getting with it by the end of that week. And then I came back to my Baptist church. And it had all left me. Something happened. My point being this, the inward posture of the heart should not be suppressed by the cultural expectation outside of us. And so when we are worshiping together, I want you to know you can hold on to your right not to move. Nobody should judge you for that. That is between you and the Lord, but also the ones that move, the ones that sway, the ones that are dancing in the aisles, the ones that are raising their hands, the ones that are shouting praise, they have the call upon their lives to do the same. And so if you are, I'm just going to say it, if you are still in that season where your arms are spiritually folded, your brow is furrowed, and you're wondering why that person, and this is what I've heard my whole life, well, they're just seeking to draw attention to themselves. Let me tell you two things. One, you're not qualified to judge the motivations of a person's heart. And number two, while you're judging them, you're not worshiping. Right? That one struck home. That's just the way it is. So what, why, why do I even bother bringing that up? Because I want to learn about this. I want to learn what... Well, I am free to worship the Lord, and I am free to let others worship, and none of us are called to be the worship inspectors. You say, well, Jeff, what if somebody gets out of hand? Well, you have elders that are called to handle that. And you just go on worshiping Jesus. Let the elders have, break off from their worship for a moment. If it gets too crazy, listen... We have mature elders that, that were uh, uh, assigned and installed by the body of believers here. They'll handle that stuff. You just keep your eyes on the Lamb. You just keep focusing on Jesus. So the inward posture, which I never read the verse, each of them, these elders, were holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is symbolic. This is emblematic. This is, these, these are pictures to show us something. Let me tell you what the heart and the bowls and these prayers should speak to us about concerning worship. This is the inward posture of the heart. The harp indicates musical worship. My friends, if you don't like worshiping to passionate music, please don't go to heaven. Please don't go. Because you're going to have a fitful time getting adjusted up there. I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek there. But the music, the harp indicates musical worship. It's, for lack of a better word, a lyre or a guitar, if you want to make it that. It's a stringed instrument. What about the bowl? It talks about being full of incense. And so that speaks to me of fullness of worship. Not a little dabble, do you? Not, come on, let's get to the meat of the word. Let's get all this music out of the way. No, fullness of worship set to music. That's the atmosphere of heaven. 
You, you may be happy to know there's not going to be a need, any need for preaching in heaven. Nobody's going to have to teach truth in heaven because you will be with the truth. You will be fully enlightened. And God will keep giving you revelation. But no human is going to need to teach you anything in heaven. So there's not going to be any preaching in heaven. There's not going to be any evangelism in heaven. If we're going to evangelize, we better do it here and now so that heaven will be full. Amen. But there's not going to be any evangelism or discipleship in heaven. There's not going to be any verbal instruction in heaven. But there's going to be a whole lot of worship and a whole lot of music. So that ought to characterize what we do down here, not only when we gather, but privately. Friends, listen, turn off talk radio from time to time. Turn off CNN and Fox News and MSNBC because that's not feeding your spirit. And turn on music that stirs you to think of the Lamb of God and the glorious inheritance that we have as the people of God. It's the prayers indicate dependent worship. So you have musical worship, fullness of worship, and the prayers of the saints, dependent worship, meaning this, as we worship, as we praise, we are expressing his supremacy, supremacy and our need for him. Worship reminds me, I need you, Lamb of God. I need you. Every hour, I need you. And so worship reminds me of that. Worship lets me know I'm born for another realm, that this realm is not my home. I want, I want to encourage some of you, because you're struggling in this realm right now. I don't like to struggle in this realm either, because I can't escape it until God's done with me. I want to prosper. I want to move in power and in spirit and in truth and in love. I want to move in those things. But life presents several seasons, sometimes long ones, of, of heartbreak and hiccups and in the sense of things don't go as you plan. But I'm going to remind you here tonight, don't get so absorbed in the difficulties of a temporary vapor that you get disengaged from your citizenship in a far better place, a place that you cannot miss as you abide in Christ. So last verses, verses 9 through 14. I may take just an extra handful of moments tonight. The precision expressed in worship. What does it look like? What does it look like? Because they're not done worshiping at this point. They're falling on their face, but I want to look at what they communicate in worship. Here's the first one. This precision expressed in worship, it springs from fresh revelation. Fresh revelation, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And speaking to the Lamb, they say, You were slain and by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. I love the fact that at the end of the age, in heaven, they're still singing new songs. Now listen, I love old songs. I don't think we have to throw them away. But I want to tell you, if all we're doing is singing the old songs, that typically indicates that we are more sentimental about Jesus than we are fresh in Jesus. And so new songs should accompany the old songs. I know how it gets. I mean, the baton in the last five years and probably for another five years is being passed from one generation to the other musically. And I know it can be hard because our favorites aren't sung as often. But the glorious thing about living in a technological age is you, you and I can listen to our favorites whenever we want. There's this thing called an MP3. 
Or if you're old school, a CD. Or if you're really standing your ground, a cassette. I'm not even going to mention eight tracks. If you've got an eight track in this house of worship music, I at least want to hang out with you. Beth is saying, I got one. Old songs are great, but friends, not in the absence of new songs. Why? Because new songs are talking about what God's doing now. What is he doing now? That's why new songs are written. And so in heaven, they have this fresh revelation. As the lamb takes the scroll, they burst into spontaneous praise. And they begin to say to him, and I'll get to that in just a moment. They say, worthy are you. We saw you, O lamb of God. You are the worthy one. The question was asked, who is worthy? The lamb takes the scroll. And the answer is, you are worthy. You're worthy to take it. Why? Because you died. You were slain. And it was that blood that you shed that paid the purchase price for a people that will belong to that one on the throne, that glorious God of all. We will belong to him forever and ever and ever. You are worthy because you made that possible, O Lamb of God. You know, he did that for you. He did that for you. He looked down and saw a hopelessly lost sinner who could never save herself or himself. You never would have made it. You could have tried to clean up, but in trying to clean up yourself, you just get more dirty. So Jesus comes in with an eternal bleach on your soul and takes every stain away through his blood. And I love this aspect of this passionate worship. Don't you miss what it says. It says people from every tribe, Every language, every people, every nation. And they're all going to be worshiping the same Lamb of God. Let me, let me just, I'm going I'm to I'm mess you up here just for a second. I'm going to put you back together, but I'm going to mess you up. Heaven is not Southern American Bible Belt. It ain't white. It ain't black. It ain't Puerto Rican, it ain't African, it ain't Asian, and it's not divided. Division is what we've made happen down here. One of the glories of heaven is there will be no walls between us. There will be no injustice socially or racially. Everybody will be, as we actually are now, but not recognizing it, equal the reason why all the isms exist, even among Christians in the 21st century, is because we're not looking at the lamb. We're looking at what divides us. We're looking at what distinguishes us, what makes us different. And, and we live according to those man-made laws that suppress the glory of God. But in heaven, when we're all focused on the lamb and John gives the description, he's like, every single generation, every single nation, every tribe, every tongue. Can you imagine the glorious diversity which will be in perfect unity in heaven where everybody will love everybody and everybody will uh, uh, validate and, and appreciate. I do believe this. I can't prove it, but I do believe this. I believe that part of heaven is going to incorporate that we will all experience the worship of different people groups and we will all love it. So there, hey, listen, just encourage some of you. There'll be some, maybe some Southern gospel singing up in heaven. Y'all gonna feel good about that. There's also gonna be some reggae. Yeah, man. There, there's going to be some, y'all, I don't know if y'all can get with me on this. There will be some hip hop 
in heaven as they praise the Lamb of God. It's, nobody said amen. Y'all are cowards. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And it's, it's going to happen in a new heavenly language, by the way. Every tribe, every tongue, I believe we will hear it in other earthly tongues in heaven, but we will understand it. But when it comes to that full expression of all of us together, we will speak in a language that none of us has ever spoken before. So that's worship, brothers. That's worship, sisters. It springs from fresh revelation. I really want to encourage you to live towards what God is doing now. Be grateful for the past, but it's not good enough for tomorrow. God's doing something. God's actually done with yesterday. We can learn from it. We can be so grateful for it. We can grow from it. But what about today and tomorrow? What about the new song? What about the song of the, the end of the age that I believe you and I are walking out right now? We must give expression in our worship, and we cannot hold worship, whether it's music, private, corporate, whatever. We can't hold it hostage to what God used to do. They don't even do that in heaven. So let's move on for the sake of time. This worship is grounded in gratitude. This is so good. Here, here's some of the lyrics. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, when John was writing this, Rome was running the show. Corrupt Caesars had been running the world, the known world, for centuries. And God had promised that he would establish a kingdom where his son ruled and that hadn't happened yet and so as they worshiped the lamb and he held the scroll what remember what the scroll is it contains the power and the unfolding of the last chapter of human history and they know it's about to be unfurled and read so they know that it's about to happen what is about to happen the kingdom the kingdom, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He is the king over every king, the Lord over every Lord. Every single defiant demon will bow and say, Christos Kurios, that's the, that's the, the Greek for Christ is Lord. Every human rebel, Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord. By the way, in, in, in the day of Rome, the confession that was mandated by the Roman authorities was Kaiser Kurios, Caesar is Lord. And so when we hear here, Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord. That is the anthem of the ages. Friends, the Bible says very clearly we're going to reign with him and we'll reign on the new heavens and the new earth. I say this with the understanding that we are to walk in humility, but it is about time that the sons and the daughters of God lifted their chin up looked the world straight in the eye and said, I am a daughter and a son of God and I'm going to live out my life for him and I'm not asking permission. I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to be ashamed. I am a co-heir with Jesus Christ and I will reign on this earth with him. That is part of your identity. The world may not recognize it, but don't wait on them to. You and I need to recognize it. Verse 11 this worship is passionately expressed. John, 
Man, he's getting a fresh word here. He's getting a fresh outlook. He's heard a new song. And he says, then I looked in verse 11, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels. So now the angels are getting in on this. Numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That basically is just symbolic or interpretive language. It means innumerable. So many angels, it was impossible to number. And they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So now imagine it. Imagine the, the, the voices of these innumerable angels that are in pristine condition before the Lord with nothing between them and God, with all of the might that God has invested in angels and in perfect uniformity, they come and they're saying, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb to receive all these things. Glory and honor and power and blessing. What does that mean? It means he's got the title deed in his hand. And what Satan tried to steal, what Adam and Eve forfeited in the garden, what, what all of the demons of hell have tried to oppress for since the garden, and especially since the resurrection, trying to suppress the authority and the rule of God, now it's in the hand of the Lamb. And the Lamb is about to receive all that he purchased, all that belongs to him. Nobody will be able to stand against him. Hallelujah! That is your Lord. That is your King. That is your God. And so he is about to do it, and the angels can't keep quiet. And then the last verses, this worship is universally harmonious. John hears every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And look at the elders. They're back down on their face worshiping. Friends, what we need to recognize is that the end of the story, and by the way, the next chapter, those, those seals start being broken, the scroll, scroll starts being opened, and God starts establishing his kingdom by dethroning all those that think that they are kings on earth. That starts happening in the next chapter. But notice what it says. It's not only heaven's angels that are getting in on the song. It's not only the four heavenly creatures. It's not only the 24 elders. It's not only all of those countless beings in heaven, but John is then in heaven given a vision of earth. And what John sees at the end of the age is that every single living creature begins to express worship under the Lamb of God. Now, I, you're going to have to use your sanctified imagination here, but I just believe my Bible. That means at the end of the age where the glory of God is manifested on earth, that there will be in some form or fashion the ability for every living creature to intentionally give its praise unto Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There will be no ignorance in the universe as to who is, who is the one who rules over all. 
My friends, I want you to think about this. I'm just going to tap your, your imagination here. Every horse will be praising Jesus. Every dolphin will be praising Jesus. That precious little cat that you try to avoid, it's going to be praising Jesus. Every dog, every sea creature, every land mammal, every insect, every bird of the air, eagles will be flying over the new heavens and the new earth, and they'll be screeching their song unto the Lamb of God. Worthy, worthy, worthy. And that includes every single human being, all that God has ever created, that groaning of the earth that waits for the full redemption, that groaning will pass away and it will turn in to praise because Jesus will have established his kingdom forever and ever. That's your destiny, child of God. That's the one who came for you. That's the one who's coming back for you. So lift up your head. He is great and he's great to you. Let's stand to our feet.